Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. I don't have any problem lingering in a time of prayer, especially when little kids are seeking after the Lord. Amen. The value of that moment can get lost on adults sometimes because we tend to think of things differently than children do. It's hard for us to even remember what viewing the world as a child was like. We can, so much time has passed that we tend to look at time in chunks and routines and it's Wednesday, they're going to sing a couple songs, we're going to pray for, he's going to teach and we're going to go home, we're going to just, you know. And uh, that's to our own detriment. Children don't always see life that way and therefore they can take better advantage of opportunities when they're presented. And... uh, the other thing is, is so many of these kids, you know, some of them have parents that come to church. Some of them are brought to church. The value of feeling the presence of the Lord. The value of feeling the presence of the Lord. Every time they feel the presence of the Lord standing in a church house, it's that much harder for some person to come along next year or some person to come along when they're 15 and tell them there's no such thing as God and there's no reason to pray and there is no reason to read the Bible or any of that because they have personally experienced feeling the presence and the love of God. How many can remember how special that is? Amen. It is so, so special and I hope that none of us ever take it for granted or let a moment pass. I, sometimes you just, I don't like to think negatively, but you just never know, you know, you're going to get another opportunity. Amen. A moment to do that. I want to do something tonight. Um, I want to talk about something that God dropped into my uh, spirit a couple weeks ago or whatever it was. And And I wanted to teach about it. I don't want to preach it. I want to teach it. Um, And I want to to take some time to look at some scriptures related to the wrath of God. If I say the wrath of God. If, If for no other reason but to remind us of some maybe overlooked parts of the Bible or just, you know, parts that, you know, we read real fast and then keep going. Um, now, it's not my intention to bring an emotion-based presentation tonight. That's why I wanted to do it on a Wednesday night. But we should all have a healthy understanding of the wrath of God, a knowledge of it, an understanding of it, beyond just an emotional component. And, and, and I believe at the same time that that healthy understanding most assuredly will bring about a reaction from us. Or I should say, when you look at the scriptures, they should impact you. You should feel them, right? You should recognize them, acknowledge that they exist, and perhaps even change 
our lives, our behavior in accordance to, amen, what the Word of God has to say. Uh, As much as I love to regularly discuss the love of God, the wrath of God is also very real and very necessary for us to consider. So we all, everybody all right? All right, maybe you want to get a notepad out, maybe you want to take some notes tonight. We're going to have a lot of scriptures, we're going to look at it. Um, and I, I promise you, it's, it's, you know, the wrath of God gets into, obviously, some judgment and hell and stuff. And I promise it's not just the oppressive heat that's motivated my lesson tonight. I, I, I'm, I'm confident of that. I, I knew I was going to teach about this long before whatever we're going through right now decided to happen, Right? Amen. Uh, It began with a simple thought, and that is this. We are not saved from Satan. We are saved from the wrath of God. That's what I want us to grasp tonight. Our salvation is not to save us from Satan. It's to save us from the wrath of God. As much as there is a very real Satan and demons and demonic presence that exists in the world today, as much as we should have a healthy uh, fear and godly hatred of those types of things, demonic things, Satan should not be our motivational fear. The wrath of God should be something that motivates us very strongly to live for God and to serve God and be obedient to a God who loves us so very much. We talk about the love of God so much because it's so easy to do so, because it is so illustrated routinely how much he loves us. It is so easily and routinely noticed that God loves us So much that he goes to drastic measures to help us, to save us, to deliver us, even from ourselves. Amen. 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 But we must also understand the wrath of God, the fullness of who he is. Revelation 14, 9 through 11, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now I want to point out right away, before some of you fall into this trap, i got to get there quick, a mistake that we can routinely make when we read verses like this. We can easily get distracted. When we read verses like this, we can say, well, who is the beast? Who's the beast? We need to figure out who the beast is. Do you think it's this guy? Do you think it's that guy? You know, this guy just got elected over here. This guy's doing this stuff. This He's evil. I wonder if he's the beast. 
And what is his image? What's his image going to be? What do you think the image is going to be? I heard somebody say his image was this. I read a book that said his image was going to be like this. And what exactly does this mark look like? And what does it mean that it's going to be on our hand and on our forehead? And, and do you think it's already out here? And are we already dealing with it? And all these kind of questions. Not that those are bad questions. They just need to be handled correctly. They cannot be allowed to distract us away from the very important element that is trying to come across in these verses. One commentator says it like this. This declaration is universal, affirming of all who thus render idolatrous reverence to the power represented by the beast and his image that they should drink of the wine of the wrath of God. The general meaning is that they were guilty of idolatry in gross form. And wherever this existed, they who were guilty of it would come under the power of the scriptures against idolatry. So what is he saying? He's saying that this scripture is pointing out what happens to people who are that go after idolatry or false gods or who do not believe in the one true God? It's what happens in the end for them. And we can get distracted from the idea of idolatry and get all wrapped up into trying to find out the answer to who the beast is, what the mark is, where it's going to be on our body, if it's going to be on our body, and forget that we're supposed to be guarding our hearts from idolatry. Idolatry is not new to the scripture at all. We don't know about the beast. We don't know about the mark. We don't know definitively about how these things are going to come to pass. The reason why we don't know definitively is because the Bible doesn't tell us definitively. But the Bible tells us a lot about idolatry. It's not a new sin for humanity at all. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul is anointed king of Israel. You'll remember. Samuel is sent by God to anoint Saul to be king of Israel. Saul is told in 1 Samuel 15, 3, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass, destroy everyone in that whole nation. God tells them, you're the king, now go and destroy all of these people. Instead, Saul does this in 1 Samuel 15 and 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. So they decided that even though God said destroy everything, they decided they would be the judge over what was good and what wasn't good. They decided they would be the judge over what was right and what was not right. But everything that was vile and, and, and refuse, they destroyed utterly. In 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 11, then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he is turned back from following me. He's turned his back on me. To turn your back on God means you have turned your front toward something else. Amen. 
He hath not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Samuel then explains to Saul why it was such a big deal to God. Why is this such a big deal? You said destroy them all, and we didn't destroy them all. 1 Samuel 15, 22-23. And Samuel said, hath the Lord as great de- Hath the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does he, does he care more about burnt offerings or sacrifices or your obedience? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord he hath also rejected thee from being king Saul says I know I was told that God told me specifically what to do and I didn't do it but I don't understand what the big deal is Bible tells us that it's a stubbornness that has iniquity or sin and idolatry at its root, at its core. Saul's willingness to disobey God for whatever reason. See, we, 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 we try to make levels of disobedience. And maybe you can get away with that with you know, levels of disobedience to parents or levels of disobedience to school teacher, levels of di- disobedience to whatever. But it doesn't work that way with God. There's only obedience or disobedience. We don't get to say, well, I'll obey in this, but not in that. I know what you said, God. I know what your word says, but I'm going to do it differently. We don't automatically connect that with idolatry, but God does. God connects disobedience with idolatry. Now, maybe. You're becoming your own God. You ever look at it that way? Say, I don't have idolatry. I'm not worshiping the sun. I don't go down worship the sun, moon, stars. I don't have any created idols in my house, carved images. Maybe you are the the God that you worship. Maybe because Saul uh, Saul thought, I know what God said, but this is what I want to do. This is better for me. It's better for me that we don't kill. Some of these sheep are good. Some of these animals could help us out. I don't want to kill the king. I want to keep the king. I want to have power over this king. Idolatry. In the New Testament, we find Paul. Remember, he arrives at Athens. And it says in Acts 17, 16, that... While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. How does a city get in this type of sinful condition? How how does a whole city give itself to idolatry? Well, Acts 17, 21. For all the Athenians and strangers which there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They had gotten themselves lost in idolatry. Lost, completely lost 
and idolatry simply because they were a people that always wanted to hear, what's the new thing? What's everybody doing now? What are they believing in that country? Hey, you're, from, you're, new, you're new around here. What does your country believe? Who do you worship? What are your gods? And they had allowed that type of culture to where they had just gotten themselves to a place where they had no absolute truth in it. There was no absolute truth. There was no final say. There was no word. Oh, hallelujah. They had gods to everything, even the altar to an unknown God. And so their ignorance led them to being controlled by idolatry and spiritually lost. That's why it matters to God. That's why idolatry is something he doesn't mess around with. Because idolatry has the power to be this mega force that thrusts itself onto the scene and says, bow down to me, like the three Hebrew boys. But it also has the power to just be this subtle, let's learn something new. I wonder what they believe. Let's see what they have to say about the matter. It's manipulative. It's deceptive. But all of it has the same goal to get your eyes off of the one true God and on to something else. This is why Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and 14, there hath no temptation taken you but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. How many like that verse? It's a good verse. It's a verse full of promise. That's how much God loves us. But what does he say right after that? Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Why does he say, Look, temptation is common to man. You're, not, you're never going to face anything that humanity hasn't faced before, but I love you so much that I'm going to make ways of escape for you. I will make sure that it is not too much for you to bear. You will survive it. You will get through it. Why does he say that and then say, but flee from idolatry? The reason why he says that is because there is one God who can make a way of escape. There's only one God who can open up a doorway out, make an exit on the highway to hell. There's only one God that can make it so it's not too much for you to bear, so it doesn't destroy your eternal soul. Idolatry confuses that, and the way of escape becomes unclear. Idolatry says there's not one God. There's all these other things you can worship. But guess what? They can't make a way of escape. That's why he says, I love you so much that in the trials coming to your life, it won't be too much for you to bear, and I'll make a way of escape for you. But flee idolatry. Scripture makes it very clear that idolatry is eternity-altering. Galatians 5 tells it like this in 16 through 21. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust." Of the flesh. Everybody say, walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, 
and spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if ye be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. The works of the flesh, they manifest themselves. They, the works of your flesh shows itself. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why he hates idolatry. Because it makes a short list of things that can eternally, they disrupt your eternity. They can change the outcome. But notice that it is a work of the flesh. Everybody say work of the flesh. Work of the flesh means we willingly bow to and serve these things, these idols or false gods. We do it willingly. Revelation 14 and 9. And the third angel followed them. We read this earlier, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. Remember that? We read that at the beginning. The word receive here implies that it was on their part voluntary. Voluntary. It was not a mark impressed by force, but it was a mark received voluntarily. So before we get distracted with the beast and the mark, we should focus on why is God's wrath involved because of idolatry, and why would I voluntarily get involved in idolatry? I'm, what I'm trying to get us to understand is that's a much more important question to answer then who's the beast? And what's the mark going to look like? And is it really going to be on my hand and forehead? I don't know. I don't know. And frankly, I don't know that I'm ever going to know. It depends on when the church is caught up. I feel like sometimes people would just be so frustrated. The trumpet sounds and they're getting caught up into the heavens and they're like, but I thought we were going to find out who the beast was. I wanted to see what the mark was going to be. Look, I'm not against that kind of stuff. But don't you think it's a more important question to find out what causes a person to willingly give themselves to idolatry that can lead to the wrath of God being poured out on your life? And his wrath is not diluted down. What does it say? Revelation 14 again. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In the presence of. 
God's not running away from his wrath. God doesn't pour out his wrath and then turn his back and say, oh, I can't watch. It's undiluted. It's full strength. Wrath. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. They have no rest, those who participate in idolatry. It has no end. So once again, we are not saved from Satan. We are saved from the wrath of God. Satan cannot do anything to us that compares to what the wrath of God will do. Paul tells the Thessalonian church about the judgment that is going to happen when Christ comes. First and Second Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I dare say there would be some people who would be shocked to find out that the phrase, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, is in the same sentence with the phrase, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Too many have made the gospel just a vast doorway by which everybody gets to just enter in, giving no attention to the requirements of the gospel upon our lives. The expectations of the gospel upon our lives. Oh, hallelujah. Yes, we say it a lot. The gospel must be applied to your life. You must apply the death, burial, and resurrection. We talk about repentance and being baptized and filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And all of that is true and amen. But there is an expectation that the gospel is going to have an effect upon our lives. That for me to say that I truly repented is like to say I am crucified with Christ. It's like to say I am a disciple and you can tell I am because I have taken up my cross and followed him. And so the gospel is not just tingly feel goods. It's just not the happy, happy message. It's a life-changing, eternity-altering message that has one very powerful uh, goal, and that is to keep us from idolatry. When we come to the Lord 
and we repent, repentance before God is an acknowledgement that there is a God who is alive and who is able to forgive me of my sin. I don't repent to something if I don't believe that it is God, that it's real, and it has the ability to do so. I don't get baptized in just any name. I get baptized in the name of the Lord, which is Jesus. So now it's even more specific about who we're talking to, who we're dealing with. And when I receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, I only do so by becoming a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he alone can fill me with his spirit. Notice how the gospel fine-tunes who God is. It makes it clear who God is so that we don't fall into idolatry or willingly walk into idolatry. And so this verse is not a mistake or a misprint. We might not love it, but God has no problem. He has no hesitation at declaring his wrath upon them that know not God and that obey not the gospel. He has no qualms about that. The gospel will save your soul. And he paid the ultimate price at Calvary for that to be true. But he has no qualms, no hesitations about saying, but when I come, those who have rejected the gospel, have not believed the gospel, my wrath will be poured out. They shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Amen. I'm resisting the urge to preach this. I want us to just get it. I want you to see it and process it mentally (laughs) and every other way. We love Revelation 21. I love Revelation. You love Revelation 21. The description of the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, it's awesome. It's one of our favorites, right? With verses like, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I mean, that's just good stuff. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Yes, please. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. It doesn't get, I mean, that's that's awesome. We love that, and we should love that. And 21 and 7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Oh, hallelujah. And later in the chapter, Revelation 21, 22, 23, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did enlighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Man, you could just, you just visualize it. 
It's so powerful and so wonderful, and we love it, and we should. But right in the middle of it, right in the middle of Revelation 21, we find this in 21 and 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And God has no problem with that. And his word has no problem with that. I can imagine John the Revelator might have been like, wait a minute, we changing subjects here? You know, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and he's just writing the glories of God and no more tears and no more heartache and all this stuff. And then God says, okay, now say this. Wait a minute, that's a whole different subject. No, it's not. No, he's describing to us the wonders and the glory of heaven. But right in the middle of it, he wants us to know that there are things, including idolatry, that can cause you to miss it all. Cause us to miss all of it. And not just miss it, but have our part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. There's a part of me that wants to apologize for the image. I was trying to find an image for my title. And I was like, that's a little harsh. It freaked people out. And then I, you know, then I read the scriptures in my notes. And I thought, well, maybe we should be freaked out a little bit. Maybe it would behoove us to remember what the Bible actually says. That this lake of fire and brimstone and torment and eternal punishment, this isn't just something preachers make up to scare people. We find a connection here to some words of Christ in Mark 9. Jesus says, 9, 43 and 48, and if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life, enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. The repetition that we find here is for the reason of driving home the point where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It's said three different times in a few verses. The illustration of this verbiage is that of a great defeated mass of people, bodies piled high. The worm eats upon the rotting flesh of the death. The fire lit 
to burn up the bodies, rages. But there seems to be no end in sight. The worm continuously has flesh, and the fire continuously burns. It shows a level of death and destruction that is multiplied beyond measure, is the illustrated point that Jesus is making in the New Testament. Everybody with me? Not able to be consumed in the natural ways that they usually would be. It reminds us that hell is not just being excluded from heaven. Hell is not you didn't get picked for the kickball team. And you just have to live on earth now. It reminds us that hell is not just the absence of the glories of heaven for eternity, and it's not just the disconnect from the presence of God. Although that's horrible. But there is also eternal punishment and torment. People write songs and say things like, well, I'm not going to make it to heaven, but that don't matter. Or I'm on my way to hell, but we're going to have a party when I get there. As if hell is just, well, I guess I didn't make it to heaven, but I'll just have to settle for the second best. That's probably where my people are anyway. No. It's not just that. And it's not just the disconnection from God, which that alone should be enough to cause anybody to change their lifestyle and live for heaven. The thought of being disconnected from the God, God, by the way, who is the only one holding back the evil and the darkness and the destruction. And frankly, is the only one saving us from ourselves most of the time. But hell is not just the absence of the glories of heaven for eternity or the disconnection from the presence of God, but there is also pain and torment and destruction. We are not saved from Satan. We are saved from the wrath of God. Now, before we get too angry and declare, well, how could God do something like that? How could God do that to those people? They don't, how could God, what kind of a loving God would do this? Hear, hear, hear your preacher, your pastor tonight, hear me. It's not about other people. It's about you and me. Other people's idolatry does not determine my eternity. Yeah. Thank the Lord. It's about you. It's about me. It's about where we stand with God. Nobody rides anyone else's coattails into heaven or hell. What will we do with the knowledge of these scriptures? What will we do when we're presented with idolatry? What will we do when we decide we want to be our own God? 
because our ideas are better. What will we do when these things are presented to us? Will we willingly accept and act in idolatry or will we be focused on the one true God who loves us desperately? Truth is, salvation is free and full and available to whosoever will. The only thing that salvation looks to take from us is that which would lead us to hell. The only thing that God's plan of salvation, the only thing that the gospel message looks to take out of our lives are the things that would lead us into idolatry, the things that would lead us into sin, and the things that would ultimately take us to hell. That's the only thing. He does not come in and just take away things for the fun of it. He doesn't just come in and mess our lives all up for no reason. He comes in and he says, I I created you with some wonderful gifts. I made you a beautiful image of myself. I've given you talent and ability, but I need to take this away and this away and this away. I need to cut these things off. I need to do some work on you because those things are going to lead you to eternal damnation. But if we get rid of those things, I can use you for my glory and we can go to heaven. We will not make heaven or miss hell on a technicality or a manipulation of the law, or because we have a good lawyer, or a lot of money, or the right name. Our eternal destination is decided by us. And we decide it every day. Somebody say every day. We decide it every day. Let's look at one more verse of scripture, or one more series here, Ephesians 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. There you go. There's our love. There's our love. And hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. How thankful are we for that? But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness. Let it not be once named among you as become as saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now listen close. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. So walk. If I say walk. Walk means live each day. As children of light. 
I want to finish with some commentary on this phrase, let no man deceive you with vain words. I like the way this commentator puts it. Let no one by artful pleas persuade you that there will be no danger from practicing these vices. We may suppose that they would be under strong temptations to mingle in the happy and festive scenes where these vices were not frowned upon or where they were practiced. Or that they might be tempted to commit them by some of the plausible arguments which were, they were used for their indulgence. Many of their friends may have been in these circles and they would endeavor to convince you that such were the customs which had been long practiced and that they should be no harm still to be involved and indulge in them. It required, therefore, this is what he says here. He says, there's going to be people that will tell you, it's not a big deal. This is fun. This is good. People have always done this. You'll have a good time. You should participate in it. It's not a big deal. There's going to be people, he says, that will treat it that way. But he says, it required, therefore, all the authority of an apostle to convince them that however plausible were the arguments in defense of them, they certainly exposed those who practiced them to the wrath of God. Paul comes to Ephesus, and he says, don't let anybody tell you that this is not a big deal. Because it's idolatry. And there's going to be people that tell you that it's fine, that it's fun, that this is the way it's always been, this is what we do, but it's still idolatry. And if you follow after those vain words and listen to those things and you are deceived, as he says, Paul says to them, with those vain words, he says, it will definitely expose you and to those who practice that to the wrath of God. Imagine humanity calling something not a big deal when God says it's worthy of my wrath. Now, we have plenty of wonderfully positive and glorious reasons to love and serve the Lord. I've never really been a hellfire preacher. Some people don't like that. Some people want me to preach on hell more. I'll make you a promise. When God tells me to preach on hell, I'll preach on hell. If he wants me to preach on hellfire and all that, I'll do it. There's plenty in the book. I've showed you a lot of scriptures tonight. But I thought that what God really wanted to do was not that approach. Not tonight. Maybe another night. But this night, just sit here and look at the scriptures. And just acknowledge, first of all, that they exist. Just acknowledge that it's just as much a part of the word as any other scripture that you love. And learn.
learn and acknowledge that God is not changing his mind. His word is forever settled. He's there. It says it. And not only does it say it, he's not sitting up there regretting that he said it. Because he knows the value of the gospel. The value of the gospel is so high that the destruction of of disobeying the gospel needs to be understood. When you water down the gospel and you make it some small thing of no account, then you can water down the wrath and make it a small thing of no account. But when you get the gospel back at the high level of value that it is, the fact that he died on a cross for you and for me, the fact that he did that for us, my sins, my iniquities, is what kept him on the cross. When the gospel has its value back, then the wrath of God will have its value back back and we will understand that God says look I'm coming back for a bride I'm coming back for a people that I love but for those that have rejected the gospel those that don't believe I also have a wrath and I will pour out my wrath upon the unbeliever and the idolater and so I choose today and tomorrow and the next day and I would behoove you to choose it as well to walk with God every day to choose the Lord every day to not follow into idolatry idolatry but choose the one true God and live as if you've made that choice live as if you've made that choice stand with me please we should be motivated so often by our loving and merciful God and what he has done for us. That should be such a motivation. We should be able routinely to think about what he's brought us from. And be thankful for the mercies. The things that should have taken us out. Our own behaviors and sins and decisions that could have destroyed us. But God's mercy kept us. His grace and his long suffering was there. We should be motivated by that routinely, daily. But maybe we also need to be motivated once in a while by the wrath of God. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you, and we hope you have a great week.